Hi, I'm Liam Hooper. And I'm Peterson Toscano. Together, we co-host the Bible Bash podcast. Each month, we look into a different ancient story. We're curious to find insights into our own queer lives. We discuss these and share our findings with you. You can find the Bible Bash podcast pretty much anywhere you listen to podcasts. New episodes come out at the end of each month. This is Sacred Tension, the podcast about the spiritual discipline of asking questions. My name is Stephen Bradford Long, and we are here on the Rock Candy Podcast Network. If you love the show and want more shows like this one, go to rockcandyrecordings.com. And speaking of Rock Candy Podcasts, we are still growing the network. So if you have a podcast or you are working on starting one, please reach out to me and I would love to hear your pitch. I want to know what you're working on and if we think it's a good fit, maybe we can produce it on Rock Candy. You can reach out to me by going to stephenbradfordlong.com and the contact form there or at rockcandyrecordings.com and send me your pitch. And in return for joining the Rock Candy Podcast Network, you will get our entire backlog of music to use in whatever way you wish for your shows. You will get access to an entire community of creators who will support you, back you up, and promote your work and vice versa. And you'll get professional consultation from the Rock Candy Studio. So if this is interesting to you, and if you're dedicated to creating more kindness and more curiosity and more weirdness in the world, then uh, please reach out to me. Also, this show, Sacred Tension, is only possible with your help. I need you to go to patreon.com forward slash Stephen Bradford Long. And for $1 a month or $5 a month, you can keep this podcast alive. So I'm a full-time worker in uh, Appalachia, North Carolina, which basically means I'm an indentured servant. And I work about 40 to 60-hour weeks. Uh, that includes the show. Uh, but I believe in what I'm doing. I believe in getting this show out there and my writing out there free for the public but in order to do that i need your help and in return for your help on patreon you will get extra content every week you will get the house of heretics podcast in which justin and i have uh drink coffee and have long rambling conversations about pop culture and politics and whatever is in the news that week and i have other content planned to uh bring you on patreon as well and finally Sometimes it isn't enough to just listen to a podcast. Sometimes you want to tap into a community. Podcasting is wonderful. It brings us a lot of connection. There's a certain quality of intimacy where it is just you and your headphones and you feel close. You, you feel like you know these people on the podcast and podcasting provides a lot of support and community for a lot of people. But sometimes you want to take it a step further and actually join a community. And to that end, I invite you to join my Slack community for Sacred Tension. If you want to join a community of like-minded heathens and pagans and queers and LGBT 
people and Christian and post-Christian and all sorts of religions, all just figuring out life together, then I invite you to follow the link in the description for this episode to submit your email to be invited to the Slack community. It's small, but it's growing, and we have a lot of fun there. All right. Well, with all of that out of the way, I'm incredibly happy to welcome the Reverend Lori Walkie to the show. Lori, thank you so much for joining me. So happy to be here. Thanks so much. So you you were featured really heavily in a documentary that came out on the 12th of July, and it is a really extraordinary documentary. It's called American Heretics, and it is about this little group of kind of religious progressive rebels in Oklahoma who are fighting against conservative Christian theocratic tyranny, right? And and theocratic tyranny that kind of destroys the fabric of society in, in that it underprivileges certain people it oppresses the poor. And you are in the middle of this. You are down there in Oklahoma fighting against this. So tell me more about yourself. Tell, tell the audience more about who you are and what you do. Yeah. So Lori Walkie or sometimes Walker, you know, depending on who introduces <laughs> you. Um, and also if you're at the doctor's office, it doesn't matter. They always think you leave the R off. But anyway, uh, yes, I am Lori Walkie, born and raised Oklahoman, lived here my whole life, mostly uh, gone to school uh, in Oklahoma my whole life. Uh, my husband, Colin, and I live in, in Northwest Oklahoma City now. I'm a pastor. He's an attorney and a state representative, and we are a surprising story, I think, for a lot of folks, but but also a very familiar story, and I think that that's what you see in American Heritage, mm. and and we're really really excited to, to to see where this documentary goes and the conversations that it starts. Absolutely, and so you and your husband make kind of this amazing team. You know, you're like this superhero couple fighting, you know, fighting the forces of evil <laughs> down there in Oklahoma. And <laughs> so he is he is in his second term. Am I understanding that correctly? Yes, that's right. That's okay. right. He's down there in the House of Representatives in Oklahoma. And so he is uh, working within the government there to affect change. And then <laughs> you are working socially to to affect change. Is that right? Yeah. Yeah, that's right. So back in 2000, we ran for the first time in 2014. And I and I say we because it's if anybody is involved in politics or run for office um, successfully or unsuccessfully, you know that it's a it's a family affair. And um, while my name is not on the ballot, man, I am I am I'm right there with him because it's tough work. It, yeah, it can be really lonely to have your name um, be the, you know, on, on that on the ballot. And mm. so I think it's really important for people to know how how vital it is for for those who run for office to have real support. And so anyway, we ran in 2014 um, and we did that because, to be honest, we needed somebody on the other side of the desk. Both of us have been uh doing work in our community, volunteering, organizing, those that sorts of thing on, on what we call this side of the desk. Mm. But we really felt frustrated in going to our elected officials and not not sharing very many of the same values, or at least not working towards uh, those values in the same way. Um, and so we we felt like we 
Colin could do some really important stuff on the other side of the desk so that when people walk into their his office, the, the office of their state representative, they would have someone who really and truly represented them. Absolutely. So we ran in 2014 and we came up short and it was pretty hard. It was at that moment that we, we really had some tough conversation about whether or not to stay here because Oklahoma is a is a very very red state, very entrenched in partisanship. We are at the bottom of most lists that people do not want to be on. And we had some soul searching to do. Hmm. We didn't end up staying. And then we ran in 2016. And we knew it was going to be a tough road because of presidential ticket. But uh, to everyone's surprise, but but honestly, we just felt like we had put in the work. But uh, on on election night in November of 2016, House District 87 elected the first Democrat in, since 1985. That's so, uh, that's history making right there. That's that's history making. So yeah, that's um, that was that's, it was quite a run. And, and of course, it was on the same night that all 77 counties went for the Republican presidential nominee. And that was a, that was an interesting dichotomy, but not unfamiliar to us because we live in a very purple district. And so we, mm. we had to pull Republicans to vote for Colin if we were yeah. going to get elected. And so we had been talking to a ton of Republicans, a ton of Trump supporters. And it was an interesting night for us, for sure. I can only imagine. So you're the associate pastor at, is it called Mayfair? Mayflower. Mayflower, the Mayflower Church. Yes. And yes. Um, Mayfair is is a series of witch novels by Anne Rice. Let's not confuse <laughs> the two. Okay, so right. uh, Mayflower is the first church in Oklahoma, is that correct, to become a help me help me with the term to become a sanctuary sanctuary, sanctuary church mm-hmm. tell me about that what yes. what was that process uh what does that mean and and what are yeah. the consequences of that so the sanctuary movement goes back a long long way and we certainly didn't invent the term we really just stepped into the the stream so to speak we stepped into the 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 river of the sanctuary movement and the sanctuary movement really is about making sure that our neighbor who are undocumented have allies and the support that they need and and for those who are part of the sanctuary movement to advocate for the the treatment of our undocumented neighbors Mm. as human beings because that is of course what they are but there's certainly over time been uh, real moves to, to dehumanize folks that are not Americans um, that are coming here looking for a better life and it's uh it's an, it's important work. So yeah, Mayflower's absolutely. Mayflower's involvement in that started when the first quote unquote temporary Muslim ban uh, mm. came from President Trump in January of 2017. And I just a quick reminder that that quote unquote temporary ban is still in effect. Yes. Over two years later. Yes, it is. Reiterations, of course, but mm. but but still in effect. So after that came out, I preached a sermon about our responsibility towards uh, migrants, whether they be refugees um, or asylum seekers or uh, folks simply wanting to live somewhere else. America has a pretty big role 
in creating the refugee crisis that we're seeing yes. in the world. We bomb a lot of countries, and and the statistics are are, are pretty pretty sobering. Hmm. Um, that has created uh, the, the the refugee crisis, and then the the first Muslim ban essentially banned anyone from coming here from those countries that we are bombing, um, that we have a presence in, and. Uh, so it, it is th therefore incumbent upon us to to make a public stand, and so that that conversation and, and that and that sermon I just said, hey, I think that Mayflower needs to be part of the sanctuary movement in word and in deed. Absolutely. So then we spent the next ten months educating ourselves. We we held seminars. We invited dreamers to tell their stories. Immigration attorneys. Uh, we we really just educated ourselves. The congregation went to all sorts of different. Um, workshops and held meetings and, and did the work. And then in uh, October of that year, we took a vote. And you see some of that in the film. Uh, mm. And there yes. were three options for involvement. That was a really powerful scene in the movie. I, yeah. I thought that was very, very moving. Yeah, and we um, because there's no there's no like checklist or official way to join the sanctuary movement, and there are a thousand different ways that you can be involved in the yeah. sanctuary movement. We we sort of had to we were just kind of like groping in the dark there for for what to do, and this is how Mayflower did it. But I want to just encourage you know anyone who is listening to this that there it's it's possible to join the 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 sanctuary movement um, in in many different ways. So, you know, as I'm listening to you talk, and this is all really, really fascinating. So my background, I, I was raised Presbyterian in, a, in an ultra-conservative setting. Mm -hmm. And now I'm, I'm, I, I like to call myself an ecumenical slut. You know, like I, <laughs> I move between all these different religious communities um, mm -hmm. within Christianity and outside of Christianity. You know, I'm a meditation teacher. I'm part of uh, the Satanic Temple, which I know caused a kerfuffle there in Oklahoma several years ago. <laughs> so, but, but, but for good. But for, for good. good the, absolutely uh, the, for good. Yeah, they are. They can mobilize against the, you know, statues being erected on courthouse lawns pretty quickly. Yes, they can. Yeah, no, they do impressive work, and and so I'm I'm part of that community. I'm kind of part of the Buddhist community, you know. So I'm I'm an ecumenical yeah. slut. I I go to an Episcopal <laughs> church. I. And um, and I also have a. You get all the smells and bells and all the. All, oh, I get all of, all of it. I get all yes. of it. I am religiously polyamorous, <laughs> and I'm here for it. I'm here for it. And you know, on top of that, I'm, I also have a foot in the atheist community. So you know, I I move through all of these different worlds. But what you're saying really brings to mind something that I've been thinking about quite a bit, which is that there is such a thing as healthy and unhealthy religion. You know, there are people out there, and I think that they are justified angry who say that all religion is evil and destructive and just needs to be banished. But what I'm seeing in this documentary and in you is that this is really a story of healthy versus unhealthy religion because you are doing this. You are yeah. motivated by your religious belief, right? Like this is this is coming out of your belief about who and what Jesus is and, and who and what God is. Am I right about that? Yeah, that's right. We believe that, that Jesus was a profoundly um, religious and political person, that those mm. two things were not in conflict, but were actually working uh, together. And so uh, we're, we're doing our best to, to follow his lead. Mm. Do you get any, what kind of pushback do you get in Oklahoma to your church in particular? 
Yeah, sure. I mean, there are folks who, you know, literally call us heretics and do not mean that as a compliment. Uh, we've been protested <laughs> multiple times. It, whenever I am in my clergy collar and on the news, it is a guarantee that I'll get pushback from people who want to tell me that I'm that women can't be ministers and um, that I am, you know, pulling people with me down to hell. And it's fascinating to me how much energy people spend on being mean to one another. Yes, absolutely. It's it, that's I'm I'm certainly squarely in that. <laughs> just it's it's really it doesn't upset me anymore. It's mm. just very confusing how people want to spend their time. So let's talk about that. What so so people are are cruel to you. People are cruel to me too. You mm -hmm. know, I've I've been called a faggot. I've been called mm -hmm. you know, all kinds of horrible things on the internet. And what is it about this? What puts people in that tribal place? Because I think we have to. I think we have to try to understand that the resistance to the yeah. work you're doing. You know, like the resistance to caring for the widow and the stranger. The, the resistance to higher pay, you know, like you're yeah, the senior pastor right. of your church. No, no, no. Your husband was was talking mm -hmm. about, you know, was trying to pass legislation for, you know, raising the minimum wage. Um, mm -hmm. You know, here in North Carolina, the minimum wage is seven twenty five an hour, which is yeah. which is fucking criminal. Right. And yes, so what is right. what is this tribal resistance to yeah. treating people kindly and well? What causes it and what causes these people who are otherwise, you know, I, you know, a, a lot of people might get on my case for saying this, but I think it's usually true who are otherwise pretty sane, pretty decent human beings who suddenly turn into these monsters, right? What yeah. is it that does that? Yeah, there is this sense of there's only so much room on the lifeboat, um, the scarcity mentality. And, and of course, Christianity in particular, I think fee can uh, certain expressions of christianity feed that feed that um that feeds that uh, lifeboat mentality that there are only a certain number of people that can be saved there's only a certain number of people god loves and somehow people have convinced themselves that like we're in charge of that even if that's even the case that that's how it works hmm. uh, i'm not convinced that we're that anybody needs a, a lifeboat or that there's uh, only so much room on the lifeboat anyway so I, I think that that's part of it. And so people want to divide and, and diminish others to make sure that they're, quote unquote, on the boat, uh, that they're going to get theirs. It's a, it's a really interesting mentality. It is. And, you know, what I often wonder about. So something that came up in the film was that we are rapidly becoming a, a uh, we are going to become a white minority country. You know, I, you know, as I was listening to Ezra Klein several months ago, and he said that the average uh -huh. age of like Asian Americans was 30 something. The average age of Hispanic people was like 20 something. The average age of black people is late teens. And then the average age of uh -huh. white people is like 50 something like. Right. You know, and, yes. and, you know, and so there is this panic setting in. Right. There's a panic setting in for the for kind of conservative white majority. I don't mean to racially stereotype people, but you know, the, the white conservative major majority. And I, I've been thinking about this and I want to hear your perspective on this because 
I often feel like there is this deeply ingrained belief that hierarchy is good, that hierarchy is maybe sometimes a necessary evil, that, you know, it might suck to be at the bottom, but the hierarchy is here for a reason. The social hierarchy exists for a reason. And white people, white conservatives might be resisting this change so hard because they know what it what we have done to people on the bottom. And they're afraid of being in that position. They're afraid of being a minority because they know what happens to minorities. We know what happens to minorities. And instead of saying, well, you know, the hierarchy sucks, this this class hierarchy is evil and we need to abolish it, we need to reframe it. Instead of saying that, they we just fight tooth and nail against mm-hmm. landing on the bottom. Am I right about that? That's Oh, I I think so. I, I think I think that that is is absolutely true. There it is very fear based. I mean, hmm. yeah, I don't I don't doubt that 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 whole mindset is about, you know, rec- there is some recognition in there that we've not done right. The the, the white folks at the top have not done right and there's some fear of retribution and quite frankly there should be um we have done some we've done some evil things. things we've done some yeah evil things yeah yeah and and mm. we've got to figure out how to reimagine a world not built on hierarchy and because i don't know that that's we've ever really seen that on a mass scale people get afraid and so they just revert yeah. back to what they know yeah, or, or at the very least, a more humane and balanced hierarchy with checks and balances. Like, mm-hmm. as much as I, you know, as, as much as I love kind of the socialist, anarchist, leftist ideal of no hierarchy at all, um, I, I love thinking about that. I don't know mm-hmm. how possible that is, but we can and must and absolutely should create a just a better system where there these where there are corrections and checks and balances and where people don't have to you know disembowel each other out of terror oh yeah you know so tell tell me some about your story becoming a pastor because i can't imagine that this has been kind of as uh, i can't imagine that this has been a simple journey for you <laughs> growing up there <laughs> and and so it's what led right. you to what led you to become a not just a pastor but a lady pastor and, <laughs> right. Right. And so what led you to that? And then what led you to the work that you're doing now? Like, how how did that come about for you? Yeah, I was raised very, very Southern Baptist. We went to church every time the doors were open. And that was one of two certainties in my life. One, that we would go to church and two, that uh, my sisters and I would go to college. Uh, my my mom and my dad really didn't they I did not learn about gender roles at home because I have three sisters hmm. so my parents could never say well the boys will do that because there my dad no needed yeah there were no <laughs> boys and my dad needed was help outnumbered up. yeah well yeah and he um he was gonna teach his kid to shoot a jump shot uh-huh. regardless uh, he needed somebody to help string barbed wire and put up fence regardless and my mom just did you know, that wasn't part of her mindset. Sure, they did some like traditional gender role things. Like I would say my mom was definitely the primary cook. Um, but I think a lot of that had to do with schedules. But, you know, she was out on the tractor mowing and, and, and doing things like that. And my dad knew how to 
wield a curling iron if necessary. Uh-huh. Um, and I good. saw him ironing clothes just as much as my, did my, uh, my mom. But it was in church where faith-based gender discrimination sort of ruled the roost. Yeah. Yeah. I could get the closest we could really get to the pulpit was if we were singing or playing the piano. And um, that's how I grew up. What tradition did you were you raised in? Southern Baptist. OK, now is is Oklahoma. Now you were born and raised in Oklahoma. Is that correct? That's right. Yeah. Okay. And so born and raised my whole life at a very small Southern Baptist church out out in the country and had actually very highly educated pastors growing up. The, the two pastors that I had from since I was born until I was 18. They both had uh, their doctors, doctor, a doctorate of ministry. Um, mm. So that was them. Um, that's you know, kind of comes in later for me, but was raised, I was quite frankly, I was raised to be a minister, whether the church that raised me would admit that or not. But that's where I learned how to make hospital visits and, and, and sit with people who are grieving or hurting, uh, where I learned about community, our social world revolved around church. And there were some things that really didn't come up now, of course, like, like homosexuality, but that was in part because no one, of course, no one talked about that openly. So I didn't really hear a lot of fire and brimstone about that, but oh man, we heard a lot about divorce, a couple of of homophobic things Hmm. uh, sprinkled in there. Uh, But the, there was not really any social justice work. We did, um, there's always a sort of sense of, we take care of anybody who walks in the door. And they did, whether whether the person was going to stick around or not. Um, I went to Oklahoma State on a basketball scholarship, and some of this is in the film, but uh, went to Oklahoma State on a basketball scholarship. Turns out several of my teammates are lesbians, and they were the really first uh, close personal relationships I was able to form with folks who identify as queer. Mm, Yeah. And turns out they're just normal people. Yeah, um, they had the same, same worries, same stress, same joy that I had, and and they also really loved Jesus like I did. Um, yes, and that was a, that was a the most powerful experience uh, that I had. Uh, at the same time, I I never st- I was a church nerd, and I never did stop going to church even in college, which is a little rare, and That's also should have been a sign. Rare. Yeah, should have been a sign to somebody. <laughs> <laughs> maybe Lori has a call to ministry, but yes. I was a girl. So, you know, I'm sure everyone thought I was going to find um, a pastor to marry so I could be a pastor's wife. And I would have been very, very good at that. A very good traditional pastor's wife. But that was not the plan. While I was in college, I attended a Baptist church and they they ordained female deacons, which was pretty wild uh, to find out. I went home and I told my mom and she had a pretty surprising response. She said, Oh good. I'm so glad the women are getting the credit for doing all of the work the male deacons usually just do. <laughs> it's true. And, um, it's true though. Like, yes. Like looking back, I'm like, that is such a Southern Baptist woman's response. Like, I it's mean, truth telling. She wasn't mad. She was supportive, uh, annoyed. Yeah. Uh, it get, was great. So get rid of the gays and the entire music industry in the church will fall apart and get rid yes. of the women and the church itself will just collapse falls apart that's exactly <laughs> right it, that, that is 100 exactly right. how it is <laughs> like get rid I of the say gays. all the time <laughs> yes that women are the only reason that the church has nice things like the only reason absolutely i 100 percent agree <laughs> with that um 
you know, and, and listening to you talk, it, it's so fascinating because I've I've heard this story over and over and yeah. over. It's an archetypal story at this point. Mm-hmm, of, mm-hmm. Uh, and it and it I think it goes back to that biblical story where Peter met Cornelius, a Gentile. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And mm-hmm. and then and because Peter was, you know, as you know, was very firmly, you must be a Jew to be a Christian or to be a real Christian or whatever bullshit, you know. Mm-hmm. And yeah. And, but then he he encountered through the witness, through the lived witness of another human being, the holiness of the other, someone who they thought was the other and realizing, no, they in fact aren't other at all. Yeah. And they are part of the family. Yeah. And and then, you know, Peter has that vision where the great big sheet comes down from heaven and it's full of all the unclean animals. And God says, eat these. And he says, but I can't. This is unclean. And then God says, what I've called clean, let no man call unclean. Right. And so this is that's right. Mm-hmm. And so I think that's a beautiful, beautiful story. And it's one that I see over and over and over again, where so I, I mean, just so many people, they believe one yep. way. They believed one way and then they met a trans person or they met or they met a a Latinx person or they met a queer person or they met a female pastor or they met, you know, just any number of people who they had put in the category of other and then realized, Mm -hmm. no, we're still the same. What God has called clean, let no man call unclean. And there is an experiential witness that happens that strikes at the very heart. It goes, it bypasses theology, it bypasses the mind and it's experience. It's lived. It's a lived transformation. And I and, and I think that this is really this is why I believe that transformation is predicated on conversion. You know, mm. you mm-hmm. know, we, the cultural transformation is is going is predicated on people having these lived experiences. That's why Harvey Milk back in the day said every everyone must come out. Every gay person must come out because if everyone comes out, then everyone will know a gay person. And if everyone knows a gay person, then the mm-hmm. world will change. And he turned out to be right. He, that turned out to be true. Yeah. You know, so I don't know that. So there's precedent for this. And, and, you know, when people come back at me and say, but, you know, that isn't theologically sound, that isn't that isn't um, rational enough. You know, the Presbyterians are all about their, you know, their reason, their frozen chosen reason. Right. (laughs) Um, And what I and what I say is, well, it's uh, there's precedent set for this kind of transformation in Scripture itself. Right. With with Peter and 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 not just with Peter, but there are so many stories in Scripture of of the other becoming not other. Oh, that's absolutely right. I, I think that's true. And and I think that even more than that, like the entire I think the, the arc of the biblical narrative is really about relationship, being in relationship w- with 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 someone you consider the other, but even you know, with the people that you are closest to, um, so that you can have hard conversations, um, so that, that you can figure out how to best love each other. Uh it's it, it is about that relationship. And it's interesting, you know, to hear people talk about theological rootedness and and I um you know I always always want to say well what do you what what do you think the Bible is about what do you think it's trying to teach us and, and what do you think of um what what is it about your religious experience that that leads you to that and are they in conflict I don't know that people especially those who have been raised or or grew up around traditional conservative uh, religion um, ha- have examined their cognitive dissonance or the cognitive dissonance yeah. demanded of them. Yeah, absolutely. You know, I, I think that 
there's I've been trying so I'm a believer. I'm I consider myself a deeply religious person. And even though, you know, I'm a I'm a non-theist, I'm a Satanist, I'm I, I identify most closely with the Satanic Temple right now, but I'm but I I have I I draw from my history and all of these other religious communities and I refuse uh-huh. to cut ties with them. I still consider I, I still consider other religious communities my brethren, you know. And uh-huh. I've just been thinking so deeply about about what makes unhealthy religion unhealthy. And I think one of it is the fear of being wrong, the fear of of, oh, yeah. of looking at something so looking at something hard. And, and really studying it because that might mean that I'm wrong. And what that does is it creates a brittle, fragile faith, like a tea cabinet, mm-hmm. right? And then yeah. all, all you're doing is just trying to protect that tea cabinet, you know, from some scary philosophical question or some scary religious question. Or, you know, if, if I ask whether there's actually a hell or not, then that <laughs> means that this entire tea cabinet is going to be fucking shattered. And then where will yep. my life be? Right. And, and it's a horrible, horrible place. And I can say that because I was once there and it's terrible. It's terrifying. Yeah. And I think that that's one of the aspects of of unhealthy religion and but healthy religion has this expansiveness this willingness to ask yeah and and you know it's interesting i um for christians i i am an advocate of this 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 we're actually called to do that regularly exactly um, it's it's part of called, worship yeah and 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 jesus tells a parable about this that i interpret as speaking directly to this in matthew 13 jesus talks about um the kingdom of heaven being like the master of a house Household who brings out of the house treasures. It says treasures old and new mm. um, for for and and the, the the master of this household is sort of the keeper of those. And and when I read that par that that parable, I think all right, the kingdom of heaven really is like us pulling out all of the things that we've been taught, the things that we've experienced, and, and bringing them out into the sunlight and giving us a chance to examine them and other people the chance to examine them and and jesus says that that's what the kingdom of heaven is like which is pretty powerful that's very powerful yeah and and you know okay i have a thought i have a question but it isn't quite fully formed how do i want to say this i'll just let that one rest and see if i can think of a better way to frame that one i'm also for rough rough around the edges i am (laughs) well i mean just the thought that i have is that you are to a lot of people in these rural southern communities, and it's same here in North Carolina, just a just a, a female pastor, a woman pastor, is like an archetypal other in a lot of ways. Uh-huh. You know, it it because it it is turning patriarchy on its head. It mm-hmm. is, and I, you know, so my my mother's a pastor, actually. My my mom's mm-hmm. a pastor, and just watching what she went through, and there's something powerful about that. There's something scary about it, and there's something powerful about it. Makes you vulnerable, but it also makes you a catalyst for transformation. And I think I just think that that's really powerful. I, I think that's um, very good. Yeah. Anyway, well, thank that's you. my and not I, very fully formed thought. Yeah, no, um, it's it's really true. It's fascinating what happens when I so I you I wear my clergy collar. I'm normally just a t-shirt and jeans kind of girl, but yeah. if I go to 
um, a public event where I am, I'm, I'm offering public prayer, or if I'm going to the hospital to visit a church member or, or someone who need, has asked for pastoral care, I always wear my clergy collar. And that is in part because around here, there people are not used to seeing female clergy. And they're certainly not used to seeing female clergy under 40. Yeah, um, absolutely. And so I do that in part as public witness because I was 24. I was 24 when I saw my the first female pastor of my whole life. Hmm. Um, she was first heard, and and it was then she was preaching at an ordination service uh, for one of my my very good colleagues. And when I saw her, I was in this my second year of law school. But I saw her behind the pulpit, and I thought, oh, that's what I'm supposed to be when I grow up. <laughs> yeah. And. And so my and so you know I'll be in Target with my clergy collars. My my favorite story is a, so a little girl is just staring at me because it wasn't just a clergy collar. It was a it's a dress a, a dress with a clergy collar. Yes, pretty unusual. And so she this little girl in front of me uh, finally said, I just you know just say hey how are you doing? And she says I'm good. She says are you a pastorina? <laughs> and, and I thought what... man. And you're like, yes, that's yes, I am. I yes, am a pastorina. <laughs> yes, I am. That's exactly it. That's exactly it. You know, I it's um it's really I, I keep reminding myself that things are changing. All of the children at Mayflower Church, they think it's completely like it would be surprising to them that people think that a, a girl can't be a pastor. And yeah. and so I know that things are changing, but it does put me in a an, an interesting liminal space. I think. Uh, especially doing um, sort of as a, a work as a public theologian. And, and it's a pretty special thing, but I, I, I keep another parable in my back pocket, and that's the, the parable of the leaven. It's a woman who works the leaven in the loaf. Hmm. And I, I think that's, a, that's a, for a lot of clergy women, uh, we remind ourselves of that, that we are unexpected, but, but Jesus talked about us already. So yes. we got work to do. Yes. And I mean, women were the first evangelists, you know, they were the first women were the right? first to That's see right. the empty tomb and then go and tell the apostles, the men. That's right. Right. That's right. So so how you know, you mentioned, you know, kids in your church. And this is something that that I am struggling with. How worried or not worried are you about the future in, in your state? particularly. I mean, I think we're, I think we're all worried. I'm not sure that we're any more worried than anybody else, you know, yeah. um, but it, it is, it's really troublesome. As, like right now, the, the, the huge attack against public education, the fight that we're having to wage for, for, and remind people that there is no such thing as someone else's kid. That's really troubling to me. So those are the, those are the fights that I, I want them so badly to see us us working on, um, mm. you know, we we don't shy away from hard topics, not just in the pulpit, but even in our Sunday school curriculum. Our Christian ed director and I actually write our Sunday school curriculum for our kids because it's hard to pull anything off the shelf without being <laughs> it being blood atonement theology and just some things that we don't 
consider healthy religion. Yeah. Um, yeah. Cosmic yeah, child so, abuse is what that is. Is what yeah, blood atonement yeah. is. I mean, anyway. Yeah. One hundred percent. No. Oh, we could we could <laughs> have a right whole we could whole have a oh, whole, whole other whole other podcast just about that. But anyway, go on. Yeah. But <laughs> right now, it's important for especially for white churches, um, not just to be not racist. Hmm. Like we have to be anti-racist. Yes. And so our Sunday school curriculum needs to use the like we need to talk about discrimination and how discrimination is a sin and we know it's a sin because it treats someone who is made in the image of god fearfully and wonderfully made in the image of god as less than and that's yeah. not up to us yeah and our kids need to know the theological roots of of why discrimination is wrong and then furthermore you know we talk about when we teach the story of of joseph and mary and jesus fleeing to egypt we talk specifically specifically about refugees and about th this is part of our theological uh, response to unjust immigration practices. And we name it um, yes. and we talk about those things with our kids directly. And I think that's, those are the things that give me hope. We're not, we don't sugarcoat stuff for our kids. We talk about hard things and they see us doing the work. Um, mm. And that's, that's where I sort of, you know, okay, here, we're, we're, this is our responsibility. This is what we're supposed to do. And we, and, and, um, and if we do this then our, our kids may have a chance. Absolutely. And, you know, activism really does make it easier for personally, like individually, you know, I, I had a, uh, a, a socialist Marxist professor on the show several months ago to, to talk about, you know, what Marxism is and isn't and just Marxist theory and all that kind of stuff. And, mm. but, but another thing that he focuses on is climate change. And this was right after the terrifying IPCC report came out, which basically said, mm -hmm. we're fucked, we're all fucked, the whole yep. world is fucked, everything's fucked. That's my very scientific yep. analysis of that paper. And, but uh, accurate. But accurate. <laughs> <laughs> and, and I asked him, like, what, what the what the fuck do we do like how do we how yeah. do we cope how on an individual basis like just me some dude in mm -hmm. Appalachia in North Carolina working way too much and trying to mm -hmm. keep, you know keep down my house and my family and my pets stay healthy like what can I do what do I do to stay sane and affect change and and his answer was really powerful he said you know Getting out there with like-minded people, getting on the streets and protesting, doing that activism, affecting change, getting with like-minded people and working towards change, those endorphins are real. And that, mm -hmm. that, he said, that's the best medicine for people who are struggling with mm -hmm. for people who are who are struggling with despair the best medicine is to actually go out there and affect change and that's right and not just and not only does that make a you know not only does that mean that we have a better chance of winning culturally winning out there in the world but it also means that that we will be healthier <laughs> you know individually right. yeah individually yeah. we are happier we are healthier and and i think that's the ticket i think that's absolutely true yeah, I mean, we talk about this a lot at Mayflower. Um, uh, we, one of the things that I, I say repeatedly that William Sloan Coffin originally came from him originally, and so I'm not quoting directly, but basically religion, spirituality cannot be personally salvific without it being socially redemptive. Exactly. And yes. We cannot separate our personal and social salvation to use all, you know, really lean into the theology of it. 
um, but we can't. Um, if we're if we're gonna, we cannot save ourselves if we do not if we are not also taking each other by the hand um, and and making sure no one is left out. I I say all the time, all of us need all of us to make it. Absolutely, uh, and that's true. Absolutely. That's true. No, and people say, well, do you? What do you mean by that? Do you mean this or this? And my answer is always yes. Yes. <laughs> yes. <laughs> well, you so, know, um, yeah, my uh, I, I don't know if you're familiar with this guy named Jordan Peterson. Yes, I am. OK, mm-hmm. I'm I'm not a fan. Just to be clear. <laughs> Not a fan. Yeah. But and this is kind of in in some insider baseball on in, in leftism. But peop, definitely everyone go listen to. I've done several inter, I've done several episodes about him. Uh, and I with really interesting people. But yeah. I in I interviewed Douglas Lane, who's who's the head publisher at Zero Books, and he's an incredible leftist YouTuber and and just really really smart guy. And Jordan Peterson has this this really, I think, dangerous statement, which is put your own house in perfect order before you try to change the world. Uh-huh. And, you know, the, the New York Times called Peterson the, the, the most important public intellectual of our day, the most important philosopher of our day, which so when I when the quote unquote most important philosopher of our day is saying shit like that, that's alarming to me. And what Douglas Lane said on my show is that in order to put your house in order, you have to change the world and vice versa, right? Uh-huh. In order to to affect change, in order to put our own inner lives in order, we have to put the outer world in order because it's a false binary. They are uh-huh. one and the same. It's a continuum, right? And right. so, you know, if I try to put my life in perfect order, but, you know, I'm I can still barely afford my health care. I can still, you know, I'm, I'm still, you know, living in a community house and barely making it. Mm-hmm. It doesn't matter. Or, or, you know, as Zizek said, you yeah. know, Zizek was recently in a in a debate with Peterson and uh, Zlavo Zizek said, you wouldn't tell someone in North Korea to put their house in perfect order before changing the world. That's fucking stupid. Anyway, right. I, yeah. you know, I know this is kind of tangential, but what what i'm hearing you say is the inner spiritual well-being and theology is inseparable from affecting social change and one of the things that i hear all the time from more conservative groups in christianity is you are replacing the gospel with social justice right i hear that do you hear that because i hear that all uh, the time yes I hear yes. that all the time, and my response is the two are one and the fucking same. Yeah, and and um, it's always very confusing when I hear that because Jesus is explicit about this. I mean, he explicitly yes, he talks about civil disobedience, about nonviolent resistance. He doesn't ever say, go and believe likewise. Jesus says, go and do likewise. So yes. this idea, and I think this conversation is connected, at least, you know, from my perspective as a pastor, this whole de- idea of social and, and personal salvation is, is, is also really rooted in, in the doing. 
it, yeah. it's it's this this idea that that Christianity Christianity is not a set of creeds but a way of life and and that's that's where I think people have started this whole well if I just believe the right things I don't have to do anything you know I was actually just about to bring that up because in the movie towards the beginning of the movie there's this great analysis of that where uh, mm-hmm. you know I'm gonna totally fuck up the history of this but basically some some old dude <laughs> a long time ago yes. um yes basically shifted the focus of early christianity from doing to believing to from acting the right way right praxis orthopraxis mm-hmm. to orthodoxy to right belief and and yeah. how this is uh, just permeated this is just you know soaked through Christian Christianity ever since, you know, with the exception of a few pockets, you know, there are some really, there are some truly extraordinary branches of Christianity that for whom this is not the case. Right. But I would say in general, we, there's this emphasis on right belief over and above right practice. And that just how like totally opposite and backwards that is. And Mm -hmm. I am so much more concerned with how people live than what they believe. Right. Like if you like if you believe in wood elves, if you go talk to the wood elves every day, I don't give a fuck until those wood elves tell you to not vaccinate your kids or to, you know, put immigrants in concentration camps. Right. Right. So that's exactly it. Like I'm I'm so much more concerned with are you humble? Are you justice oriented are you kind are you compassionate are you self-critical in a healthy way like those Mm -hmm. are the things that i am looking for and that is how i'm able to you know hang out with the satanists and the buddhists and teach yoga and (laughs) go to an episcopal church because to me it's about right practice and not about right right belief yeah 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 i think it's really interesting that that, um i I think there's just like a, a a lack of humility in our world today, um, that if yeah. that if uh, that a lot of this is rooted in, well, if I acknowledge that someone else is experiencing some kind of sacred, you know, has a sacred experience, has sacred practices, that that somehow diminishes um, those practices and traditions that I find sacred, and so I have to diminish them or I have to to put them down or say that they're wrong. Yeah. And then of course we get all worried that if if we if we say someone else it right is right that it means that we're wrong and we don't have the even we definitely don't want to entertain that but but the humility to say i want to learn more about what you know how this person is working the seeing the good in the world and working to make that flourish and then how can i partner with them to exactly. to, to grow that even more exactly it's it's like life is too fucking short yeah we, you know we have this one little blip of time you know regardless of what we believe about the afterlife we have this one little blip of time on this planet mm-hmm. together and are we really going to spend it fighting over theology? 
yeah. or ritual. Right. I mean, that that goes exactly back to where I started, where I was yes. like, it's weird how people want to choose to spend their time. Yes. I mean, it's like we have cataclysmic climate change. We have we have a, you know, white supremacist fascist in the White House. We have all this stuff. And this is how we want to spend our time. Like we have so many more important things to work on. And we could yeah. and we could we could work on them together like atheists, Christians, Satanists, etc. We could all work on this stuff together. Together. That's exactly, you know, at our, yeah, so we, ha we have a weekly immigration vigil uh, outside the ICE office here in Oklahoma City. And the Oklahoma atheists are a, a, a pretty significant contingency of the people that show up every week at that Absolutely. vigil. Absolutely. And, yeah. um, and that's what it's about. And it's not just that the Oklahoma atheists are there. Um, it's, it's, there are a couple of Baptists, UCCers, Methodists, Catholics, Lutherans, you know, uh, Nazarenes. And yes. that is, is like one of the most important things about the vigil to me is like this gathering of some of people who don't agree on everything and it's fine because we can agree on what the right thing is here we can agree on justice and exactly. and what god looks like in the world in the, on this particular issue absolutely 100 percent. and you know that's that's one reason why i have you know every different week i have you know a satanist an atheist a Christian, a pagan, mm -hmm. uh, an Odinic pagan, you know, a Marxist, yeah. uh, you know, like, because uh, if I've, we are a cosmopolitan society, whether we like it or not, no, you know, no matter how much we resist it, we are multicultural. And if we don't start working together, we're just fucked. Like, and if we don't yes. start to learn like these basic skills of how to communicate productively with people, we mm -hmm. might not agree with theologically, but still find common ground with, then we're just fucked. And so anyway, thus endeth the rant. Okay. I, so I think that this <laughs> is, um, I think this is a great note to end on. And I don't know. I, I just think that you're an incredibly inspiring and strong and courageous person. And I'm incredibly grateful that, that there's this little band of heretics down in Oklahoma <laughs> doing the work you're doing. And I, I hope that everyone will go see the documentary. It's called American Heretics, released on the 12th of July. I will have information about where you can find it in the notes for this episode. Please go check it out. And um, also, if people people want to find you or people want to follow your work, where can they do that? Um, I, my uh, social media handle is high heel rev. Awesome. So you can find me on Twitter and Facebook and uh, Instagram. That's a, that's a badass name, by the way. <laughs> I love that. Okay. Hi. Okay. So high heel rev on social media, go hunt her down, go give her some love and also go give her husband some love. He's a, he's a hot Republican stud. No, he's not a Republican. He's a, he, he has a stud though. He's definitely I, a stud. Um, I don't disagree with anything you just said except the mislabeling. Yes, except the, definitely. He, I meant a rep. I, I meant a, a representative. <laughs> That's what I meant. He's a he's a yes. hot representative stud. He is. He yeah. is. Um. Yeah. No. As I was watching Thank the documentary, you. I was like, Oh God, he's he's hot. He's gorgeous. Like, <laughs> damn. <laughs> I mean, I don't disagree. Cool. All right. Well, it has been so lovely talking to you. 
Uh, thank you so much for having me. Thank you so much for having these important conversations and for, and for moving our, 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 our world into a, a more just and loving place. Well, we all do what we can. And uh, yeah. hopefully, we, hopefully we can keep moving forward. And if ever you want to come back onto the show, just let me know. I'd love to have you back on. All right. Thanks so thank much. Thank you. Thank you so much. All right. Well, that is it for this show. Thank you so much for listening this week. Thank you so much for uh, giving me a chunk of your week. It means the world to me. And if you love this show, want to support it, there are several ways you can do that. Right or just leave a five-star review on iTunes, that's, that is incredibly important because it helps the algorithms, it helps the digital overlords take notice of my show and then recommend it to more people. Uh, so that is one very simple thing you can do to raise awareness for the show and support my work. Uh, another thing you can do, share it with your friends. Share it to social media. If you have a blog, talk about it. If you have your own podcast, talk about it. If you want to share your own work with me or if you have any news that you want to share with me that you want discussed or if you have ideas or anything at all for real or you want to come onto the show. So many of my guests are just random randos from the internet sending me messages asking to come on and I will probably say yes. So if you want to come onto the show, talk about what's on your heart and mind, please just send me an email or contact me on Twitter or Instagram. And then finally, you can support me on Patreon, a dollar a month or $5 a month. Also, don't forget to go check out the other Rock Candy shows, Bible Bash, Bubble and Squeak, Eleven D Life. As usual, I love you, my kittens, my unicorns. You're all wonderful. Thank you for listening, and I will see you next week. America